Tonight we're looking at probably the most well-known passage in the New Testament, perhaps in the whole Bible, John chapter 3, and I decided that we would go ahead and spend the whole time on Jesus' interview with Nicodemus because it is a significant interview with lots of very uh, poignant points. And so um, let's spend a few minutes talking about this. You know that uh, a lot of people know the content of John 3.16, even if they don't know any other part of the New Testament. You see it at the football games and that kind of thing, John 3.16. So this is interesting that the Lord would allow this passage to come to such um, fame, really, in Western culture. So here we are in John 3, looking at the interview of Jesus with Nicodemus. And uh, let me just... Read the passage quickly with you. We're going to draw out some highlights in just a minute. But let me just remind you how the whole thing sounds. I'm going to go rather quickly with the reading because it's so familiar. So, John chapter 3, and I've provided it for you in your notes. Uh, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these miracles that you do except God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, unless a man is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it listeth, and you hear the sound thereof but cannot tell whence it comes and whether it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you a teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Verily, verily, I say unto you, We speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No man has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven even the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth in him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be made manifest. But he that doeth the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been wrought, done in God. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. That brings us into chapter 4. Well, a couple of very important things to notice about Nicodemus the man. Nicodemus was a ruler of Jews. You know, we talk about a ruler came to Jesus by night. That's Nicodemus, the member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the most important Jewish council. Uh, that there would be like a, a Supreme Court judge, although there were 70 of these. And uh, so, you know, a lot of them. But still... Uh, to be a member of the Sanhedrin was a really big deal. He was one of the most important men in the entire nation. So that's who we're dealing with here. 
you also remember that Joseph of Arimathea, who took Jesus' body for burial, he also was of the Sanhedrin. So some of the very most important Jewish people of all did convert to Christ. Uh, the second bullet there, Nicodemus defended Jesus in chapter 7. He said, does our law judge any man before it hears him? Because he's being criticized. So he defends Jesus in chapter 7. And we know that he displayed his loyalty to Jesus when he donated a uh, large uh, donation of embalming spices for Jesus' burial. So that would clearly identify him with anybody who knew him, that he was a follower of Jesus or he would not have honored him like that. So even though the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, even though they were responsible for crying out for Jesus' crucifixion, clearly Nicodemus was not among them. And when he aligned himself with Jesus in his burial, um, he, he took some considerable risk. So we notice that he comes to Jesus by night in chapter 3, sneaking evidently because he didn't want to risk his reputation. And chapter 3 doesn't say that he became a true and loyal follower of Jesus from that day forward, but the evidence is that he became a true and loyal follower of Jesus eventually in Jesus' earthly life. Uh, You see the third bullet point there. This entire event occurs evidently very early in Jesus' ministry. So we don't know, you know, the dates of all these things just perfectly. But since chapter 2, verse 13 and verse 23 mention the Passover, and that would take place in March and April, and since this was the first Passover of Jesus' earthly career, we might imagine that Jesus' public coming out, including his baptism, 40 days, more than a month, of temptation in the wilderness, fasting, his first discipling efforts, etc., must have taken a couple of months. So perhaps we could guess that that happened in February and March. And then Passover takes place in late March or early April. So maybe this dialogue with Nicodemus would take place shortly after the Passover. Maybe we're in the May or June time frame, maybe April. Um, Nicodemus has seen Jesus publicly do miracles. So early in Jesus' ministry, not so long after his first Passover. We're months into the career of Christ, evidently. You see the hollow bullet there. That's an important point. It's important that we realize the implications of the fact that this discourse on the born-again experience took place three years before Pentecost, if Jesus had a a three-and-a-half-year ministry then the day of Pentecost is three years away from this conversation. All right, it's important to notice that. Even though Jesus is teaching Nicodemus about the utter necessity of rebirth on this occasion, neither Nicodemus nor any other person in the world had ever been born again at the time of this dialogue. Nor could Nicodemus or any other person become born again until another three years after this discussion, that is, until the day of Pentecost after Jesus' glorification. So it's important to realize that nobody has ever been born again and nobody will be born again as part of the new covenant for another three years. If you look at the indented uh, square bullet point, um, I'm reminding you here that John has not only uh, set up that same sort of uh, early dialogue, later fulfillment scheme in chapter 3. He's done it in chapter 7 as well. So the square bullet point. It's not surprising that the Gospel of John alone 
elaborates on the regenerating ministry of the Holy Spirit. John wrote his gospel well into the phenomenon of the astonishing harvest of Gentile converts in the early church, something like 50 years after the events of Acts 2, because the gospel of John, you put data about 80 or 85, uh, the death of Christ, say 30, that's 50 years. Uh, He therefore tailors his message, his gospel, to the more normative doctrines of the church age. John includes another clear example of tailoring his message to the church age in chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, where he says, This Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So when Jesus said, And out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, John says, Yes, he's talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but it's much too early because that was on the Feast of Tabernacles, according to the opening of John 7, uh, that's September. So September of Jesus' first year of ministry, nobody would have that ministry of the Holy Spirit until Jesus was glorified. We're still essentially three years away. So John is talking about the born-again experience, but you have to remember that nobody had been born again up until now, and nobody would be born again until the day of Pentecost. We have to wait until Jesus' glorification, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then all of that kicks in. Um, At the bottom of page 25, you remember that Jesus chides Nicodemus, are you a ruler in Israel and you don't even know these things? You're a teacher and you don't know these things. So Jesus reprimanded Nicodemus in verse 10 for not recognizing his reference to promises about a changed spirit as they were described by very important prophecies in the Old Testament. When he said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. Nicodemus was supposed to be excited to recall the prophecies of the new covenant in which God would do new and wonderful works in the inner person of all his followers. So here's the deal. Here's what should have happened. Nicodemus should have read Old Testament prophecies and should have been thrilled about them. Like, won't it be great? The day is going to come when the Lord is going to do a work on the inside of all of the hearts of those who follow him. And when that work comes, this is sort of like the epitome of the grand work of God among mankind. And he's going to change us on the inside. Won't that be great? And Jesus comes along and says, you know, you're going to be changed on the inside. And Nicodemus says, what? I don't know anything about this. And Jesus thinks that's deplorable. Really? You should have been looking forward to this. You should have been craning your neck forward to hear nuances of what might be coming if indeed I am the Messiah. You should have been waiting for words like this to come out of my mouth. And instead, you're scratching your head and saying rather silly things about human birth and entering the second time into a mother's womb. Why weren't you excited about this in the first place? Well, here are the Bible verses, some of the Bible verses that talk about this. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 36, This is a new covenant. The Lord says, I'm going to change. I'm I'm going to do something new someday that's different than what I've ever done before with human beings. So in verse 26, the Lord says, a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And in verse 27, I will put my spirit within you. That's big. You mean the Holy Spirit is going to come inside us routinely, all of us who follow Jesus? I will put my spirit within you? Really? Because when that happens, 
that changes everything. And instead of looking forward to that, Nicodemus basically says, huh, I don't really know anything about that. We, we never thought about the significance of that. Well, what could be more significant than that? If you turn that page over, you'll see Jeremiah 31, which is probably the premier passage on the New Covenant. We call it the New Testament. And Jesus said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. The New Testament starts at Calvary. Well, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant, New Testament, with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and will write it in their hearts and will be their God and they should be my people. That's a change on the inside. I am going to now do a work on the inside of people. I'm going to put my law on the inside. It's not going to be Ten Commandments engraved in stone coming at you from the outside. I'm going to do something on the inside of your heart. I'm going to put my law on the inside. And I'm going to put my spirit in you. Ezekiel 36. You're not going to be the same. You did have a hard, stony heart. I'm going to do something on the inside. I'm going to, I'm going to change you from the inside out. And one more text like that. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. Shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants, upon the handmaidens in those days will I pour out my spirit. So once again, the Lord says, I am going to do something spiritual, something that is very different. And it's going to change you, utterly change you. I'm going to take away your old stony heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. And that's just going to change everything. So Jesus comes to Nicodemus and he says, what would you think? about being born again? What would you think about being born of the Spirit? About being entirely new on the inside? What would you think about that? And Nicodemus says, I've never really thought about that. And that was his mistake. That's why he deserved to be reprimanded. Uh, Does that raise any questions or observations so far? Are you tracking with that? Joanne. Yeah, if you can hear Joanne, she's, she's talking about, you know, the expectation when you see this passage, I'm going to take away your stony heart and I'm going to give you a soft heart. Think, well, I think I know lots of Christians who still have stony hearts. You know, what gives? It is troubling. That's why it's probably good for us to say, well, if, if a fellow seems like he still has a stony heart, we probably shouldn't run up and down promising him that he's really born again. I think it's possible for a born-again person to be pretty rotten, but I'm not going to give him any assurances. They're like, why are you behaving like that? You know, that really, that really is ironic in light of the born-again experience. Why are you behaving like that? And I think it's possible that you can, but I don't think I'd like to give him any assurances that he's truly born again. One other thing to factor in, which is very important, The new covenant is technically not fulfilled yet. Jesus said this cup is the New Testament in my blood, and that's a really, really important thing to grasp. You know, it begins with Calvary. But in Jeremiah 31, there are actually four provisions of the new covenant. The first one is that he would put his law in our hearts, and that has been fulfilled. The second one is, uh, I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And that's a covenant, by the way, from start to finish, the entire context is, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the Egypt. 
uh, led them out of Egypt and they continued not in my covenant. And I regarded not, them not, saith the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So we're talking about a Jewish covenant. Well, how many of you are Jewish? So that's a little strange. And of all the Jewish people in the world, how many of them care anything at all about this covenant? So the first one, the first provision of the covenant is that he's going to put his law in our hearts. The second one is I'm going to be to them a God, to them a God, to Israel and Judah. And that clearly has not happened yet. So we're one in one so far. The third provision is they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Excuse me. Do we all know the Lord? Everybody on planet Earth? That's not going to happen until the millennium. So now we're one for three. The first one, he has put his law in our hearts, but the Jewish people are certainly not declaring him their God. And certainly there's a great need for people to evangelize and tell every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. We have to do that, you know, like a house on fire. There's nothing more important than that. That's the Great Commission. The fourth provision is I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Well, we have that one. So now we're two out of four. What we see then is that Calvary established the new covenant, but your experience is not the fulfillment of the new covenant. You're half fulfilled. And the word full and fill, uh, that doesn't fit very well with half. But uh, you're, you're halfway fulfilling the covenant. And so what you see right now is that this covenant is fully filled in the end times, what we would call the millennium. So why are these people not experiencing this dynamic spiritual change? Probably because today we are not precisely the fulfillment of the new covenant. We're, we're getting parts of it and thank God for the parts we have. But this is not the fulfillment of that covenant. Desi and then Jerry. She's asking what Jehovah's Witnesses do with John chapter 3 and you must be born again and you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's no problem. That's true. They think only 144,000 will go to heaven, but heaven doesn't occur in this passage. Only the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. So that's no problem. They're just going to read that as paradise earth. That doesn't present any difficulty for them. Um, Being born again, I can't remember what Jehovah's Witnesses do with the idea of being born again. I don't remember what their angle is on that. Yeah, that's a good question. Jerry, yes. You know, the Bible has a lot of covenants. And on Wednesday nights, we've been going through a series on the promises of God. Some of the promises of God are, we are, a promise is a promise. You know, it's always guaranteed and sure and secure. So there's no problem with the promise being uncertain. But maybe the applications of the promises are uncertain. So, for example, in the covenant, we know exactly what's going to happen. You don't need to teach anybody anymore saying, no, Lord, because everybody does know me. It's just so specific and so, uh, so, so obvious. We can't miss what that could possibly mean. But we could perhaps miss what some of the promises mean. For example casting all your care upon him for he cares for you we're sure that the lord cares for us as to what precisely that's going to mean 
tomorrow and the next day, his care. I don't know exactly how that's going to be worked out. Does that mean when I'm dying of cancer, he's going to care for me? Or does it mean he's going to push the cancer away this time? I don't know the details of that. But the covenant is so specific. The conditions of the covenant and the provisions of the covenant are so specific that it really has teeth. You know, the implications cannot be missed or avoided. And uh, so, yeah, the, the new covenant has some very specific legally binding provisions. And uh, sometimes in the promises, we're left to guess, I wonder how that's going to work out in my life. But this is very specific in the covenant. Okay, so the first bullet at the top of page 26. Notice that Jesus says in verse 13 that he is actually in heaven. That is so interesting. Uh, Just to remind you, verse 13, No man has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, who is in heaven. So Jesus has just told Nicodemus, you know that the Son of Man is in heaven. But clearly the Son of Man is sitting there talking to Nicodemus on earth. And when Jesus says that, we think that is a very quiet and subtle uh, explanation of his deity because only an omnipresent person could say, you know, I'm in heaven right now. And I'm also talking to you right now. So that's quite a thing. And some people say that can't be what Jesus said. And so certain manuscripts of the New Testament have changed that. So it doesn't say that. But the best manuscripts say that. And that's the way it belongs. And it's a strong statement on the deity of Christ. So the Son of Man is in heaven. And he's also talking to Nicodemus in person on this occasion. Uh, The next bullet after that. When we read, For God so loved the world. That's very interesting. In both Greek and English, the nuances are the same. If I said, for God so loved the world, you might say, oh, well, that means that God loved the world so much. You know, I loved him so. And that's true. That's true in Greek and in English, either way. On the other hand, the verse says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So the word so... We also use in English, same as Greek, to mean thus. So I want you to place the car in park and set the parking brake like thus. Zip, like that. So do you mean like so, this way, or do you mean so much? Because the word in English or Greek can have both nuances, both connotations. And I suggest that it it means both. Um, That the Lord loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son. And also the Lord loved us this way. How has the Lord loved us? Like so, that he gave his only begotten son. This way, this is the way the Lord loved us. And so it's interesting that that little word so, both in English and Greek, carries both nuances. And I think they're both legitimate. Uh, And by the way, so do many, many other Greek scholars. I'm not making that up. Does that raise any questions or observations? All right. The next bullet, verse 18, is one of several crystal clear statements Jesus makes about the exclusivity of the gospel and the Christian faith. When Jesus says, he that does not believe is condemned already. That's so important. People think, oh, when I die, then I'm going to be condemned. No, actually, if you don't believe, you're already condemned. At this very moment, you walk every day condemned. Like, wow, condemned already. 
I don't even have to wait for you to die. That's true at this very moment if you have not believed. So he that believeth not is condemned already at this very moment simply because he has not believed. Isn't that interesting? Belief is just like the only condition. That's what it says. He that does not believe is condemned at this very moment. For what reason? Because he has not believed. And that is just so powerful. This is not the only time that Jesus says this. And we're speaking about the exclusivity of the gospel here. Who gets to go to heaven? Who is not condemned? The answer, the guy who is at this moment a believer. If you are not a believer, then you're condemned at this moment. And every day you walk under condemnation. Well, what if you're a really, really nice Hindu? That won't work. You have to be a believer, a believer in Jesus. If you are the nicest Hindu that we've ever met, you're condemned at this very moment. Not even waiting till you die. You're condemned at this very moment. That's quite a thing for Jesus to say. That's, that's the exclusivity of the Christian faith. Say, was it? Uh, I actually heard, um, I think it was Stephen Colbert. I can't remember. He was making a joke about the exclusivity of the gospel. And it's like when the Christians say, you know, we are the only way. Jesus is the only way to be saved. And they were kind of mocking this and said, oh, there are many, many ways for people to be saved as long as it's through faith in the Christian gospel and the Christian Messiah. And he was laughing, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, many ways as long as it's through faith. And, and they thought that was ludicrous. You know, why would anybody think that their religion is the only right religion? And he was mocking our situation. But Jesus talks about that in the same chapter. Again, you see the first hollow bullet there, John chapter 3, verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And by the way, all that is in present tense. So the one who does not believe in the Son of God in the future shall not see life in the future, but at this very moment God is mad at him. The wrath of God abides on him all day, every day. For what reason? Well, he just doesn't believe. But what if he's the nicest Buddhist in the whole wide world? That doesn't really help. God is angry with him at this very moment and every moment until he becomes a believer. If he never becomes a believer, he dies under God's wrath and faces a wrathful God in judgment. So that's now a total of two strong statements on the exclusivity of the Christian faith in just John chapter 3. We haven't even left John chapter 3 to get those two, but there are others. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, you see the second hollow bullet? He that has the Son has life, and he that has not the Son of God has not life. Just like that. The exclusivity of the Christian gospel. John chapter 14, verse 6, most of you know very well, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. Well, I want to go to the Father through somebody else. That can't happen. That's the exclusivity of the Christian gospel, the Christian faith. Romans 10, 13 is great, you know, to leave John, the apostle, and go to Paul, the apostle. Just follow Paul's flow of logic here. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Paul says, if they will call on the name of the Lord, and by the way, just a couple verses above this, it says, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus. So he asks, well, what Lord are we talking about here? If you call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Oh, well, that would be the Lord Jesus. Well, how can they call on the name of the Lord Jesus if they haven't believed in him? A good point. And how could they ever believe in him if they haven't even heard of him? Good point. And how will they ever hear of him if nobody tells them? Good point. Which is why we send missionaries all over the globe to tell people so that they can hear, so that they can believe, so that they can call upon the Lord, so that they can be saved. And if they never called on the Lord, that's it. They uh, die in their sins. They die condemned already. They die with the wrath of God sitting on them in the present tense and forever and ever then. So you see, that's the exclusivity of the Christian gospel. This could hardly be more politically incorrect. How could we aggravate our neighbors more than to believe what we're looking at here. And yet, that is what the scripture says. I wanted to remind you how difficult it's going to be for you to stick to your guns on this. When you read those verses, particularly the two in John chapter 3 and the Romans 10 passage, I could find loopholes for the others, but you can't really find loopholes for the two in John 3 and the one in Romans 10. So when you read those passages, you understand that. There's not one word there that's too hard for you to understand. The logic coheres. It all makes sense. And there's no other sense you can get from those passages. That's the exclusivity of the Christian gospel. Christians go to heaven and the rest go to hell. That's what it says. Now, it will be very hard for you to... Stick to your guns on this to really embrace it in this current cultural climate. And I want to show you how many of your friends are going to have something different to say. You see the bulleted points. These are all people who don't believe what I've just presented from these texts. A uh, survey, Pew Forum, found that 57% of evangelicals agreed that many religions can lead to eternal life. That's 57% of evangelicals, so we're already in the minority. Ronald Nash, in his book from 1994, says, Inclusivism is endorsed by as many as 50% of denominational leaders, so not ignorant people, not people who have no acquaintance with the issues, but denominational leaders and professors in mainstream evangelical colleges and seminaries. So we're talking about half of the people who study for a living these issues. Brian McLaren, who's recognized by Time Magazine as one of the 25 most influential evangelicals in America in 2005, he said, I find myself closer to the view of God held by some universalists than I do the view held by some exclusivists. I've just presented the exclusivity of the Christian gospel. And uh, Brian McLaren says, "Uh, I am leaning toward universalism, which means that everybody eventually ends up in heaven. That's universalism. 
Rob Bell, um, recognized by Time Magazine in 2011 as one of the 100 most influential people in the whole world, and uh, recognized by thechurchreport.com as number 10 in their list of 50 most influential Christians in America. He said, it's been clearly communicated to many that this belief in hell as conscious eternal torment is a central truth of the Christian faith. This is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love. So these are heavy hitters, not in the world of nominal Christians, but in evangelical circles. Evangelical meaning you believe in the born-again experience and the authority of Scripture. And they're saying it's not true. The exclusivity of the Christian faith is toxic. Joel Osteen on Larry King was asked if Hindus will go to heaven. You know, I'm very careful about saying who would and wouldn't go to heaven. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their religion, but I know they love God. And I don't know. I've seen their sincerity. So I don't know. Hmm. Seem to have a different message in John 3 and Romans 10, right? Billy Graham, 1997 interview with Robert Schuller. They may not even know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts that they need something that they don't have. And they turn to the only light that they have. And I think they are saved and that they're going to be with us in heaven. They may have never seen a Bible or heard about a Bible and never heard of Jesus, but they've believed in their hearts that there was a God. And he said, I used to think that pagans in far off countries were lost, were going to hell if they did not have the gospel of Jesus preached to them. I no longer believe that. I believe there are other ways of recognizing the existence of God through nature, for instance, and plenty of other opportunities, therefore, of saying yes to God. Like, hmm, that doesn't sound like John 3 and Romans 10, does it? William Young, author of the book The Shack, portraying God as a chuckling female who says at one point, I have forgiven all humans for their sins against me, but only some choose relationship. And in the book, Jesus said at one point, those who love me come from every system that exists. Some are bankers and bookies, Iraqis, Jews, and Palestinians. I have no desire to make them Christian. Hmm. Sounds pretty different than what you've just read in the Bible. With that tremendous social pressure coming to bear on us to change our view, you find yourself in a straight between two. You have to decide when God speaks clearly in Scripture, do I side with God or do I cave in to social pressure? And it's very hard to side with God, but I don't see how you can be wrong on this doctrinal point if you stay with John 3 and Romans 10. So I think you ought to side with God. Does that raise any questions or observations? Josiah. Well, I mean, if you're looking for loopholes, you can usually find loopholes. It's very hard to find loopholes in the John 3 passages and the Romans 10 passage. But any port in the storm, they say, so I don't want to believe that. What can I do? Rob Bell, for example, wrote, love has to win. We can't believe that most of the people who have lived in human history are going to go to hell. That would mean that love lost, God lost. And we can't let God lose. They have to be somehow redeemed. And so, you know, the logic coheres. 
but you side with the logic over against chapter and verse statements of Scripture. Paul. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the $10,000 question. Why would you even want to be a Christian if the cross of Christ is not that important? And of course, they're going to say it is important. Uh, they would say the Hindus get to go to heaven, most of them would say. The Hindus get to go to heaven because Jesus died for them even though they don't know it. Although, more and more people are saying, well, you know, they could go to heaven without the cross too. The primary, remember Dr. Schweitzer, famous African medical missionary. He started as uh, a good Lutheran who believed the gospel, and then he realized that he really didn't believe the gospel anymore. He didn't think the cross really mattered. He said, still, I think that Jesus is the most noble character that has ever come across the stage of history. So he said, basically, the cross of Christ doesn't really mean anything except that Jesus is like casting himself in front of the train of history to stop the atrocities and he gets run over by the train. But it was great that he tried to stop the atrocities. So I'm going to do that too. And he quit his job in the theology department, went over to Africa and started a medical missions outpost and is considered, you know, one of the greatest humanitarians that has ever lived because he did what he could to relieve human suffering, same as Jesus. So they see in Jesus a role model, but they don't see him as a savior particularly. The cross did not really matter that much. It shouldn't have happened, and it's a shame. Desi. Yeah, of course, Paul should have died before the Gospel of John was written. Yeah, Desi, Desi is saying, is it possible that people would look for a loophole in that, you know, Paul, speaking about the exclusivity of the Gospel, might sound a little different than Jesus I mean, people do that all the time. Uh, they're trying to demythologize Jesus. They call it demythologizing. So Paul and John and the other apostles, they built all of this uh, superstructure of theology, which isn't even true. It's not even what Jesus taught. And they're, they're pretending that that's what Jesus taught. So they say our job is to strip away all of the silly things that Paul the Pharisee added to the theology of Jesus, strip that away. And John, who was not, he's a forger, the real disciple John never wrote the Gospel of John or the Epistles of John. It's certainly not Revelation. So you have to strip away all of this early church nonsense theology and get down to what Jesus was really all about. And Jesus was really all about turning the other cheek and loving your neighbor. And that's the Christian faith. And that other stuff about what the cross means, the penal substitutionary death of Christ, the exclusivity of the Gospel... That's never what Jesus intended, and, and the Bible is just wrong on all those things. So that's the main loophole. Now, some of these evangelicals, I'm, obviously Billy Graham would never believe that. Billy Graham is just caving in and saying, you know, I, I would like to think that there's a way for people who have never heard the gospel to still be in heaven forever. And what we would suggest based on the scriptures we have at our disposal is that the pagan in a far-off land, Hindu, who's worshiping one of his idols, should pause, and by the way, this has actually happened before, should pause and say, "Uh uh-oh, I am worshiping a stone or a wooden image, which I have made with my own hands. That makes me the creator who made my hands. And if he desires to know who made his hands, the Lord is going to send him more light. 
And if he responds to that light, to that information, the Lord is going to send him more information. And if he responds to that information, eventually, one way or the other, if he wants to know the truth, the Lord will move heaven and earth to give him the truth. A Cornelius kind of event. So we don't think that anybody is going to hell without a chance to respond to truth. If he responds to the truth he has access to in that moment, the Lord will give him more and more and more until one day a missionary comes and all of the miracle stories, evidently even sending angels from time to time and giving dreams and visions from time to time so they can hear the truth even if a missionary doesn't come. But they have to hear the name of Jesus and call on that name to be saved. That's the way the Bible reads. Josiah. I still remember when I was a kid, I went to high school from 1974 to 1978. Some of you young people, can you believe that? I remember the hippie types around me in Chicago saying, you know what? We're going to stand on the shore. Let's make it Lake Michigan because we're in Chicago. We're going to stand on the beach in Lake Michigan smoking pot and bring all the military guys home. And when the Russians pull in to Navy Pier on their submarines, we're going to tell them, come on and smoke pot with us and it'll be the end of war. You seem to have a really different view of what those fellows are going to do when they come here, if they come here. And that's basically what people are doing with Jesus. You know, you're just foolishly putting all kinds of ideas, projecting ideas onto Jesus and the gospel that are so naive and are so detrimental. It hurts so many people. But they're projecting the Jesus they want him to be onto the Bible, and they, they don't like the Bible, and they, they prefer their projection over what the Bible says. That's how it is. Tom and then Kathy. Yeah, you look at the history of England, Paul says, well, why don't they just give up on Christianity altogether? That basically is what England did in the last century, just gave up on it. And so it is happening. Uh, Kathy, so maybe if we weren't careful, we would have been pretty mean to you in your early 20s. Well, our time has passed, so how about if we just stand and be dismissed with prayer? Lord, we do thank you for that thought that you would give us a new heart, a new spirit, and that we would have thoughts we never otherwise would have had, an emotional strength that we never imagined we would have. And all of that because of your indwelling Holy Spirit and the born-again experience. Thank you for this all in John chapter 3. And I pray that we would, as the Scripture appeals to us to do, that, that we would follow the Holy Spirit's leading, that we'd be led of the Spirit and filled with the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit would come through in, in our lives in every way. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.